Amen. We'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 8. And our sermon this morning is on the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. And I want to begin our time this morning by uh, just mentioning I am a member of the Planet Fitness Gym over here in Orange City. And I have been for about two years. And that was a really big adjustment for me because I actually came from Gold's Gym before I moved here. And I don't know if you know anything about gyms or gym memberships, but Gold's Gym and Planet Fitness are like two ends, two opposite ends of the, the gym spectrum. Two opposite ends. I mean, the business is the same. The equipment's the same. The smell, unfortunately, is the same, okay? But there's one drastic difference between Gold's Gym and Planet Fitness, okay? Culture. The culture of both gyms is extremely different. You see, I joined Gold's Gym, like it was like 2010, I think, I joined Gold's, and I never really felt like I belonged there. I didn't. I mean, there's a lot of people there that are serious about weightlifting, right? And they've got veins popping out everywhere, and they throw weights around, and they grunt, and they're always fighting for the mirror time. And, and I walk in there, I'm a skinny kid, you know, I can get blown over with a stiff breeze. And seriously, I felt like I didn't belong, you know? Um, I, I couldn't bench press a Mini Cooper, and so it's like I just felt ashamed, you know, when I walked in the doors there. And, and so, you know, I just never really felt like I belonged at Gold's Gym. Well, I move over here to Orange City, and I walk into Planet Fitness, and from the first time I walked through the doors, I was blown away because it was a completely different culture at Planet Fitness. In fact, when you walk in any Planet Fitness, this is what you read when you walk into Planet Fitness, okay? They should pay me like a commission today for this, but check this out. We at Planet Fitness are here to provide a unique environment in which anyone, and we mean anyone, can be comfortable a diverse, judgment-free zone where a lasting, active lifestyle can be built. In the end, it's all about you. And as we evolve and educate ourselves, we will seek to perfect this safe, energetic environment where everyone feels accepted and respected. We need you because, face it, our planet wouldn't be the same without you. You belong. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it's like my grandma wrote that, you know? It's like it can't get any more affirming than that. And so, like, first time I read that, I, I, like, wept, you know? I'm like, finally, a gym for people like me, you know? <laughs> I belong. <laughs> and seriously, I, I'm walking through. I'm, the guy's giving me the tour. You know, you get the tour. So I walk through. I'm seeing people talk to each other. They're actually talking and being social in a gym. There's actually one guy. He's drinking a cup of coffee while he's working out. I'm like, this is me, man. This is for me. will accept anyone in here, you know? A place of full inclusion, right? No judgmental stares. I mean, in fact, you know what's amazing? When you walk through Planet Fitness, they have all these affirming signs everywhere, like, you belong, and welcome to the judgment freeze. I mean, it's awesome. Seriously. And I'm walking through, I'm seeing all these signs, I'm seeing people talk to each other. You know, the lion's laying down with the lamb over here. I mean, it's amazing. It's like heaven in here. And, uh, and, and you know what's the coolest part of uh, Planet Fitness is? They have something called the lunk alarm. Raise your hand if you know what the lunk alarm is. Anyone? Okay, a few of you. The lunk alarm is an alarm. It's actually, it's like a fire engine siren that they have mounted in the facility. And if you throw a weight on the ground, like you go and you throw it down, or if you grunt or if you stare at someone, if you give someone gym intimidation or gym intimidation, right, they sound this alarm and it goes off through the whole facility and it's amazing. Yeah, oh my goodness, someone said. Um, it actually, I love it because it shames the shamers. Seriously, the church needs this, folks. You know, someone walks in with a hypocritical, judgmental stare. Woo! You know, just goes off. Church needs something like that. The lunk alarm, I love it. 
And, and so do many people. People love Planet Fitness. I mean, because Planet Fitness has tapped into a market niche that no one else has tapped into yet, okay? They know, they realize, the corporate executives at Planet Fitness realize that gyms are magnets for judgmental people. If you're not judgmental before you get there, you will be over time, okay? And so they market their entire brand around one thing, equality. Equality. They're not really selling fitness so much as they're, as they're actually selling Equality, there's no favoritism here, there's no criticism here, there's no judgment here. This is a safe place where you can come and you can work out or you can drink coffee and just sit there and pretend to work out, but we don't care. They are tapping into a market niche that no one else has tapped into in fitness. And that's why on their wall, they have a sign that says, no critics. Planet Fitness equals no critics here. And so the first time I walked through Planet Fitness, I literally took a picture of that big sign when you walk in because I thought to myself, I wish the executives from Planet Fitness would come and talk to the church because they have a lot to teach us. Because gyms and churches actually have a lot in common. There's actually a lot of parallels when you think about it. I mean, think about this. The reason you start going to the gym is because you're really out of shape and you're unhealthy. And so you're seeking to cultivate a healthier lifestyle. And so you start going to a gym or a church to become healthier. But what happens is a lot of times the people that are already healthy, quote unquote, so intimidate you and shame you that you're not healthy like them that it actually repels you from the very place that you went to become healthier and you end up becoming unhealthier. Can I get a witness, right? <laughs> amen. One person says, amen, I'm burned, right? That's what happens. Gyms and churches tend to produce a culture of exclusion. They just do. They have a tendency to actually promote the opposite of what they actually stand for. And so a gym and a church have many things in common. And uh, that's the reason why Planet Fitness has the lunk alarm. is because they want to shame the wolves into silencing their criticism to protect the sheep and to foster this very safe environment where you actually begin to work on your health and get healthier. Because they don't want people being intimidated right on out of the gym by people who are already in shape. Anyway, I think Planet Fitness has a lot to teach church because we in the church, we talk about equality and we say that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We, we say that and we love that. We say amen and we sing about it. But when it comes down to it, we are often guilty of the sin of being partial, of showing favoritism and nepotism, right? We're so guilty of that. In fact, our text this morning is all about the sin of partiality. And uh, we are currently in the midst of a series called No Second Class Kingdom Citizens. Because the major overarching theme of Mark's chapter 7 and 8 is this. The kingdom of God is for all peoples. No matter your gender, your age, your race, how much money you make, none of that matters. All that matters is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Because it doesn't matter who you are, the kingdom of God is for you. Because there's no partiality with God. In fact, one like verse you can memorize if you wanted over the next four weeks, one verse that sort of like just encapsulates this entire series is Galatians 3.28. Let's say it together. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Isn't that awesome? 
Isn't that an awesome text? That is exactly what the Bible is teaching us in Mark chapter 7 and 8. Now, just in case you haven't been with us the last few weeks, if you just kind of like parachuted into the church this morning, um, Jesus is currently on a mission trip in Mark's gospel. He's ventured out of Jerusalem, okay, and he's visited Tyre and Sidon and this region called the Decapolis. And he's on a, a mission trip. He, he didn't spend a weekend there like we do mission trips. Jesus actually spent eight months on this mission trip, which was about you know, a quarter of his ministry on this earth. And so Jesus spent a lot of time going around to Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis, all these areas preaching the gospel. And by spending so much time in these areas and healing people that weren't Jewish, God is teaching us a very important lesson in this text. He's teaching us that God is an equal opportunity Savior. That's who He is. He's an equal opportunity Savior. And in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus does this mighty miracle he feeds 4,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. I mean, look at verse 6. This is what verse 6 says. It says, He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to His disciples to set before them. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed those, He said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full of bread left over. And there were about 4,000 people, and then he sent them away. This is amazing to think about. I mean, Jesus provides lunch out of thin air. I mean, he takes some, some bread and he breaks it and he multiplies it. It's an amazing miracle. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, but didn't we just read about Jesus feeding thousands of people in the Gospel of Mark? I mean, some of you are like, it seems to me like, like two months ago, Tommy preached this text, and Jesus already did this before. I mean, I know some of you analytical types, you're wondering what's going on here. And I want to explain to you this. Yes, Jesus did feed thousands of people earlier in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually in Mark chapter 6. Jesus fed 5,000 people. Now, I know that answer is not sufficient for some analytical folks because they start turning over in their minds. They're, they're wondering themselves, now hold on a second. If Jesus just fed 5,000 people just two chapters earlier, and now the Bible says Jesus fed 4,000 people, seems to me that's, aw that's, a, that's an awful big coincidence. I mean, is it possible that Mark may have like did a boo-boo here and misprinted and wrote the same story twice? I mean, is it possible that Mark forgot he wrote about that account and just like repeated the story over again on accident? You know, this is, a, this is actually a very, very popular view by critics of the Bible, skeptics of the Bible. People are always looking for what they think is proof that the Bible is not inspired, it's not infallible. And so they'll read stories like Jesus feeding 5,000 people, and then they'll read about Jesus feeding 4,000 people. And then the skeptics will say, you see, we told you, told you the Bible is not expired. Told you the Bible is a flawed book. Now let's go to the strip club, okay? There's no God. That's what they do. They're looking for proof, quote unquote, that the Bible is not inspired. Because they say, you know what, Mark, he just, he forgot. He wrote the same story twice and he just mixed the facts up. And this book is a merely human book. Well, I want to respond to such skepticism about the Bible, okay? Can I, can I brag on the Bible for a bit this morning? Can I brag on? Come on, baby. 
Because listen, this isn't the same story, okay? These are two different feedings. Two different feedings, okay? Because when you look at Mark 6 and you look at Mark 8, you see there's drastically different details. I mean, check it out. I made a little chart here. Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 folks. Mark 8, 4,000. Mark 6, he used five loaves and two fish. Mark 8, seven loaves and a few fish. Mark 6, there were 12 baskets left over. But in Mark 8, only seven. And listen to this. This is the biggest probably difference. In Mark 6, the word for basket in Greek refers to like a little lunch pail. Right? There were 12 lunch pails left over. But in Mark 8, it, it refers to like these big wicker baskets. Big enough for a person like the Apostle Paul to be let over a wall in. There were actually seven huge laundry baskets full of bread left over after the miracle in Mark chapter 8. So if Mark told the same story twice, he's got a terribly bad memory. He's just throwing facts out there and changing Greek words. These are two different feedings because they have two drastically different set of details to them. Now here's the question, okay? Why did Mark, why did he think it was so important to write that Jesus fed thousands of people again. I mean, don't, don't we get it? I mean, we get it. Jesus can feed thousands of people, okay? Why are you telling us again that Jesus can feed thousands of people? So it may seem kind of redundant to us, but listen, there is an awfully good reason why, G, why Jesus fed 5,000 and then 4,000. There's an awful good reason why Mark put this in the Bible. And something you have to understand about Scripture, okay, is that everything that's revealed to us in the Bible is for a reason. Everything. Okay, there's nothing just thrown in here. And there's two things you have to understand about the Bible, okay? First of all, this is not merely a human book. This is a divinely inspired book, okay? And this is important because a lot of people, especially skeptics, they think the Bible, like they, they picture Mark, like the gospel Mark, they picture Mark sitting around the campfire with a bunch of his buddy, knocking back cold ones, drinking beer, and saying to himself, hey guys, I got an idea, I'm going to write a Bible book, you know, book. I'm going to write about the life of Jesus, you know? And they, they, they kind of view him like throwing stories out and just throwing things in, in the Bible to talk about Jesus' life. You know, it's, it's like Mark's telling his buddies, like, hey, I'm going to put in there about the time Jesus fed 5,000 people. You think that'd be cool, you know? Dilly dilly, you know? Dilly dilly, dilly dilly, dilly dilly, you know? You know, and how about the time Jesus fed 4,000 people, huh? Dilly dilly, dilly dilly, dilly. You know, it's, it's almost like this consensus of he's just throwing stories out there. And we view the Bible as this merely human book. But here's the deal. Men were actually overshadowed and guided by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. Check this out. Second Timothy, or Second Peter. Peter says this. He said, know this first off. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's not their own ideas. They're just throwing out. Dilly, dilly. That's not happening, okay? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Nobody said, hey, I got an idea. No. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know what's amazing? That word carried along, underline, highlight it, use your finger and highlight it in your phone. It's an amazingly deep word. It has the idea of your being like, sort of like forcefully guided along a path. You see it in the book of Acts referring to a, a ship being driven by the wind and the waves in a direction. When you think of carried along in Mark's gospel, think of a kayaker flying down the rapids, okay? 
Now he's writing, he's using his vocabulary so he can go right or left, but he's going down that white rider rapid. He ain't going nowhere else. He ain't going backwards. He is carried along. That's the idea that Peter says, that's how Scripture was inspired. Men were carried along as they wrote, and God used them. And so the Holy Spirit actually inspired this book. This is not just a bunch of dudes getting together and writing you know, Bible stories, okay? That's the first thing we have to understand, because the Bible has no errors in it. None. The second thing we have to understand is this. Everything that we read in the Bible is for a specific reason. Nothing's in here haphazardly. Nothing's just thrown in. There's no feedings over here and feedings over here, and we ran out of things to talk about, so we're just going to throw stuff in here. We know that's the case because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling him this. He's saying, all of Scripture, all the Bible is written for one overarching reason, to make you a mature and complete Christian. Which means this. Which means a mature and complete human being, okay? Which means this. No matter what situation you're facing in your life, no matter what kind of wisdom and guidance you need, it's found in this book. Okay? The Bible doesn't say, and God gave Dr. Phil, you know, to make the man of God or woman perfect. It doesn't say that. It says he's given the Bible. And I'm not saying there's not wisdom in those people because Dr. Phil has some wisdom. He does. But this is the only thing that God has given to make you perfect and complete. And so if you have a situation in your life and you're like, I need guidance, it's in here. And if it's not in here, you don't need it. You don't need it. So the second thing you have to realize is the Bible is given on purpose. You know, There's no fluff in here. God doesn't inspire filler, okay? It's not like that research paper you wrote in college where it had to be 500 words. And so you typed everything you could think of. And then you did the dreaded word count feature. And you prayed. And it said 430 words. You're like, no, no. So you had to go back and you sprinkled in 70 words of absolute garbage, right? And you're like, you did that. So you can meet 500 words and you put 502 words just to make the professor think that you weren't being lazy, right? You went a few over. That's not what the Bible is. The Holy Spirit doesn't inspire filler or just throw stories out. Everything in here is for a good reason. God didn't inspire 66 books and make the Bible thick so you think it's important. Like, man, that's a big book. I guess I better read that. You know, it's not how it goes. Everything in here is for a reason. And so the Bible is given for one specific purpose. Every passage of Scripture, every verse, every jot and tittle, Jesus said, is given for one specific purpose. And when you open it, you can know for sure this is not an accident or a misprint. This is to make me mature. So, that's a plug just to read your Bible more, okay? That's just for free. Um, but that means this. That means related to this passage of the feeding of the 4,000, the reason why the Holy Spirit put Mark into a kayak and sent him down the writing of Scripture rapids is because this feeding in Mark's gospel teaches us something that the feeding earlier in Mark's gospel didn't. And specifically, what this text is teaching us is this. God wants us to know that, that He has compassion upon both Jews and Gentiles. That's the reason why He's feeding another few thousand people. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 took place in 
Galilee. Let me see if I can get my finger up there. Galilee, right? But this feeding of the 4,000 takes place in the Orange area, which is the home of the Tennessee Volunteers, John Strickland, right? The Decapolis. Boo, I know. No partiality. So anyway, Galilee, everyone's equal. Everyone's teams are equal, right? So Galilee is the home of Jewish people, right? The Decapolis is the home of non-Jewish people. Gentile, unwashed masses, you know. And so Mark wants us to know that Jesus has compassion upon both Gentiles and Jews. God wants us to know this. Everything I've done for the Jews, I'll also do for the Gentiles. I've already fed them, and guess what? I'm coming over here, I'm going to feed you now. Because there is no partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites. He's not a nepotism or any of that kind of stuff. God wants us to grasp this so that we do not fall into the sin of partiality and elevating one group and oppressing another group. Now, this is where it hits home for us because many times we, we think of the Bible, we just think of the Pharisees being the really judgmental people and the snobby people, but here's the reality. Jesus' own disciples were really snobby. I mean, you read the New Testament and you're like, you almost have to like read the Bible slower than we do because it's right there and we miss it so often. They were full-on snobs. Jesus' own disciples. And this jumps off the page at us when we actually compare the first feeding and the second feeding. For example, in Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000, look at this. Because you're going to see the disciples bring the need to Jesus. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him. And they said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. In other words, Jesus, you've got to do something. These folks are starving and our fellow countrymen are going to perish. You've got, you got to shut the sermon down, bro. Okay, You're going long. It's time. it's time to send these folks away so they can eat so they don't die. They're very concerned here about their countrymen. And Jesus responds to them, you, the next text here, please. There we go. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. And look at their response. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It's like, that, that's a rhetorical question. They're saying, they, they feel this obligation. They feel this weight. They feel this need to provide and take care of their fellow Jewish countrymen, but they don't have the money to go buy a bunch of food and to feed these people. But they, they again, they feel stuck because they feel this weight of expectation and obligation upon their shoulders. They, they feel this need to provide for their fellow Jews. And Jesus is saying, you feed them, and so they feel stuck. And so what happens is, Jesus actually multiplies food and feeds 5,000 Jewish people. That's the situation in Mark chapter 6. That's the first feeding. Now check this out though. It's a completely different scenario in Mark 8. Sometimes we read so fast we just skip over these details. Look at Mark 8. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, listen to this, I, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now not one day, not all day, three days they've been with him. And they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from, a far off, have come from far away. This is the second feeding. This is the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. Look at, the, look at the disciples' response when Jesus says this. Complete opposite. 
And his disciples answered him, how can, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's sort of like, you know, gee whiz, Jesus, how in the world are we going to feed all these? I have no idea here how this is going to happen. Even though just a chapter earlier, you fed 5,000 people, right? What's interesting, too, this doesn't come across so much in our English translations, but that word one, it's an indefinite article in the Greek, and it literally refers to anyone. Not just us, not we, not us, but who, who is it out there that could actually go and buy a bunch of bread and feed these people? We don't know who that person would be, but man, gee whiz, Jesus. We don't know how to accomplish this feat. This is not a matter of unbelief, guys. This is a matter of partiality. This is a matter of passing the buck. Because if you were Jewish and you were like them, man, they felt responsible. They felt obligated to bring your need before Jesus. But if you weren't like them, you weren't part of the in-group, they weren't signing your yearbook, and guess what? They don't care if you perish. They don't care if you eat or not. And so Jesus feeds them. And he feeds the 4,000 Gentiles. Because partiality and favoritism is something that the Jewish Christians throughout the New Testament, they fell into. And so what's happening here is that this text is inspired by God to teach us and warn us about the sin of partiality that oftentimes we bring right into the church. And we don't even know it's there. We're blind to it. Because the early church was plagued by prejudice and partiality. I mean, this is something, when you read through the Bible, the New Testament, it's all over the place. I mean, the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts didn't solve this problem for the early church. They struggled with partiality throughout the the book of Acts, throughout the formation of the early church. I mean, for example, do you know why God first appointed deacons in the church? It wasn't to get the pastor fired, okay? It wasn't like, you know what, i got a pastor down there, I'm too afraid to fire him personally, so I'm going to appoint a deacon board so they'll fire him. That's not how it went, okay? No. The reason that deacons were first appointed and brought into the church was actually to confront racial prejudice. I'm not making this, it's all right here in the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Look at this. It says, now in those days, or excuse me, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, church is blowing and going, it's blowing up, a complaint by the Hellenists, which refers to the Greek-speaking, Greek, non-Jewish people. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, here's the situation. In Jerusalem, there's this huge assisted living facility, okay? And it's full of Christian widows. Okay, that's who lives there. And there's a lot of bingo going on, but it's not gambling because it's Christian bingo, okay? And, uh, and there's a lot of matlock going on. They're watching a lot of matlock. Okay, but when chow time comes, here's what happens. When the food time comes, the Hellenist widows, as we just saw in Acts 6-1, the non-Jewish widows were being neglected. And in the Greek, it means overlooked. So the waiter comes around. He's got the tapioca pudding. And he's doing a little duck, duck, goose. Duck, 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 goose. Duck, duck, duck. You know, he's skipping over the Greek-speaking Gentile widows. That, that's actually happening in the, in the early church. I mean, God is blessing, and he's blowing the doors off of the church. But yet they have this culture of exclusion. And so you know what God does? He sounds the lunk alarm and actually dispatches a bunch of deacons to stifle racial prejudice. Because, listen... You have to be pretty cold-hearted to want to starve out widows, don't you? 
I mean, the prejudice and the partiality in the early church was so thick, they were ready to starve out widows. And so God raises up the deacons to confront this sin. And listen, this, this scripture, it's so sobering. Acts 6.1 is so sobering. Because this really shows us, guys, when you're partial, it's not like a little like, well, it's not a big deal. I just, you know, I hired my buddy and oh, I only hire men because they, you know, da, da, or I only hire whites because da, 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 or I only do this or I only favor the young or da, da, or I only favor the old. When we show partiality to an age group or a demographic or a gender, when we show partiality to one group, we invariably oppress and devalue and marginalize another group. It's not like, well, I'm only showing favoritism to one group, but I'm really not hurting anyone. That's impossible. Because here's the deal. Partiality and prejudice, they go hand in hand. Partiality, as Acts 6 shows us, you decide for someone based upon their age or their gender or their ethnicity or tact or whatever it is. But prejudice is deciding against someone. And listen, these things work in tandem. It's like a seesaw. Because you cannot elevate the Jewish widows without devaluing and oppressing the Gentile widows. You can't show partiality to the in-group without oppressing and abusing the out-group. It's just the way it is. And so there's no such thing as harmless partiality, okay? That's an oxymoron. It's like gentleman's club, right? Ain't no gentleman in that club, okay? It's an oxymoron. So you can't favor one gender without oppressing another gender or race. And so God appoints the first deacons to stomp out racial prejudice. And that's why it says in verse 2 of Acts 6, it says this, And the twelve summoned, the twelve apostles, that is, summoned the full number of the disciples. They said, it's not right. We should give up preaching the word to serve tables. We can't get involved in that, but we're going to actually raise up some godly dudes. And they dispatched them, right? They were men full of good repute and the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they actually went out. And they made sure that those Gentile widows got some food. The reason that God first appointed deacons in his church was not to take up the offering. It was actually for social justice. And so don't ever let people tell you the Bible does not talk about things like social justice and that pastors in the church are just focused on teaching. That's so popular today. We're just called to teach. Deacons are called to teach. Teach, 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 teach. No, no, actually we're supposed to be involved in this world too. We are supposed to be involved in our world. And the first deacons were champions for social justice. And we see in Mark chapter 8 the seed form of partiality that would plague the early church. Now here's the question this morning. How does Jesus handle his prejudiced and partial disciples? What does he do? I mean, does he say, you know what, guys, you're a little bit racist. It's okay, though. Listen, everyone's a sinner, and there's grace, and that's why I came, so don't worry about it, you know? Jesus is big. I'm big, man. Don't even worry about it. You're a little racist. No, just keep... Is that what Jesus does? No. Jesus actually commands his disciples to serve the people they don't like very much. Again, we read the Bible so fast. Look at this. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. He's going to do the, hard, the heavy lifting, okay, folks? He's going to do the squatting. He's going to multiply the food, but then he gives it to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. He's like, you know what? You're going to go serve those folks. And then you're going to pick up all the fragments left over, and you're going to get down alongside these people, and you're going to rub shoulders, and you're going to eat with them, and you're going to fellowship with them. Jesus is actually purposely cultivating diversity here. He doesn't let them off the hook and just say, hey, grace covers it all, no big deal. Jesus actually commands them to go right into the fray of diversity. And this is where we find our, ourselves this morning, friends, because 
This is how this text hits us. You know, the church is also called to, uh, to shun the sin of partiality. We're called to cultivate diversity. And the church ought never to be a place that's full of like factions and, you know, divisions and partiality. We are called to, to purposely cultivate this diversity across all boundaries. You know, age, gender, race, everything. And there's one surefire way, as I prayed over this text, one surefire way that I believe we as a church can begin cultivating diversity, okay? It's real easy too, very easy. Ready? Join a home group. That's it. It starts with joining a home group. Because here, here's the truth. We live in a very diverse area. There's folks that live in this community from all over the spectrum. We don't have to go on a mission trip and go somewhere else to actually begin cultivating diversity. There are enough different people in, in your communities there's enough different people in various home groups that if you join and you make a commitment to stay in that home group, God will begin cultivating diversity in your heart and life. No, no, it's, it's going to get awfully quiet in here because here's the reality, guys. I would say the number one reason why people flee community, the number one reason people actually jump from church to church or they, they don't go to home group, not the only reason, but the number one reason that people don't do those things is because of the sin of partiality. I have heard so many times as a pastor, people will say things like this to me, and they really don't realize what they're saying. They'll say something like this. They'll say, I visited that church, or I visited that home group, but I never really felt a connection, and it was kind of boring to me. I just I didn't connect with anyone. So, in other words, there were no other 45-year-old single men that collect matchbox cars in, in that group, okay? And so I, I just I felt the Spirit lead me away. God was calling me away to a different place. Because I went there and there was no one like me. And so when you hear that as a pastor, and you hear that like repeatedly over and over again, once a week I'll probably hear that. Here's what they're basically saying. The reason I didn't like that group or that church or whatever it was is because uh, they were too diverse for me. Come on. There was no one there that has my same hobbies, my same station in life, had everything in common with me. Me, me, mine, mine, me, me. Remember the seagulls and finding email? Mine, mine, mine. Remember that? This wasn't a group that was designed like God's up in heaven going, I got a home group just for Jeff, and I'm going to design it for him. You know? Like, we hear that so often. This is not full of much people that I want to hang out with. I hear that so often. And here's the problem with that. Viewing Christianity that way is totally skewed because the church is supposed to be diverse. It's supposed to be. God designed it that way. In fact, that's why in Scripture, the church is called the body of Christ. Some of us are hands. Some are feet. Right? Some are eyes and some are ears. We're all different. We complement one. We're diverse. We work together. It's not supposed to be all eyes or ears. And so when you visit a home group and you're the only eye and you bump into Mr. Ear... You know, the right response should be not, oh, you got cooties, I'm out of here. No, the, the right response should be this, Mr. Ear, I'm so thankful you're here because you being here helps me here. And by the way, I have the gift of sight and you have some hair growing on your lobes, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> and we work together, right? You hear from me and I spot out your ear here and your peach fuzz, right? You got to tighten that up. And so this is the way the church is supposed to work. And so if you visit a church or visit a home group and you discover there isn't anyone there like you, guess what? That's actually a good sign. That's actually a sign of health. That's not a bad sign. If you go somewhere and everyone's just like you, you're not in a church, you're in a bar, okay? That's where you're at. <laughs> because if you visit a home group 
Listen, if you visit a home group and you're disappointed that there wasn't anyone else there just like you, then please allow me to be the first person to welcome you to Christianity, okay? Don't get mad at me. I just work here, okay? I don't know what you thought you signed up for, but seriously, when you signed up with King Jesus, Jesus never promised to surround you with people just like you because He likes to spread the wealth around. Jesus likes to cultivate and see diversity because diversity is beautiful. Diversity compliments. Okay? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus was a carpenter, but if Jesus was a DJ and He did your birthday party... He'd be doing rap, reggae, you know, indie rock, even though no one knows what that is anyway. You know, he'd be doing every kind of genre because Jesus loves diversity. He loves it. And so if you're upset that God hasn't saved a bunch of people just like you, then before you send him an email, let me let you know, first of all, that was never his intention. God never designed the church to be Jeff and a bunch of Jeffites running around. Oh, goodness, please, no, right? We don't want that because the church is for everyone. White people, orange people, people that wear trench coats in the summer and yoga pants in the winter. We're all, listen, God has designed the church to be this diverse, awkward group of people, and He wants to cram us all into a six passenger minivan called the church, okay? And we're going to ride elbow to elbow, no deodorant, all the way to heaven, okay? That's what His, I didn't, I didn't plan this out, I just work here again. Because doing life together, friends, that's the way that we pursue sanctification. That's why we do it. I know we live in a day, we, especially at churches like ours, because we go deep here, right? You can't bring your snorkel. You've got to bring the scuba here. We go deep in the Word here. We're Bible beavers. I get that. But so often we, we like skirt Christianity and make it all an intellectual pursuit. And so we think of holiness and we think of me getting alone at Starbucks with a fresh new journal. The pages are still stuck together. And I've got my Bible there. I've got a new fountain pen. It's $85. And I've got a large batch of vanilla scones in a large coffee, and I'm going to study for five hours, and I'm going to get holy, because I'm going to become an expert in Bible trivia, and I'm going to be so godly. We think that way. We do. We think of it as all information. And listen, the way that God is going to teach us how to love isn't by memorizing the Greek word for love. The way that God is going to teach us how to love is by practically pressing us into diversity and some of us are so against being inconvenienced in any way that we're not signing up for that. It's the sin of partiality. Of wanting to only associate and hang, hang with people just like me. But again, when you get pressed into a home group and you say, this is my home group and I ain't leaving, you are going to learn holiness in a brand new way because in home group, we can promise you one thing. You're going to be inconvenienced. Okay? <laughs> You will be, because home group is where the, the guy known as the oracle who answers every question, no matter if he's called on or not, right? You know the guy I'm talking about. He's the oracle. He sits back and strokes his beard and presents his wisdom. You've got that guy who has to sit next to the guy with OCD that checks his watch every two minutes to make sure the meeting ends on time, right? Got to end at 7.30, you know. Dateline's on. I got to get home, you know. You've got these people get crammed into a home group, and they've got to work it out. And so God's method to teach you holiness is actually to fill you with His Holy Spirit and put you together with people that are going to bug the tar out of you. It's exactly the way He teaches us holiness and maturity. And it's not merely an intellectual pursuit. And I'll say this. Some of you will never feel connected here. You just won't. At Grace Life, until you actually decide, I'm going to join a home group and I'm not leaving. Until then, this will be a place of like scholarship, but not a place of fellowship. This will be like a TED Talk for you. You'll come and you'll say, I wonder what Jeff's going to say today, or Tommy, you know? Hmm. Until then, this will be merely an academic exercise. 
And I'll say this, maybe God's working on some of your hearts this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to join a home group. I want, to, I want to encourage you. Take that step of faith. Follow the Spirit's leading and do that. In fact, on the way out, stop at the home group's cart on the way out and find a home group near you. And get plugged in. You know, And begin to cultivate the abs part of your American Christianity because we flee. We flee community today. The reason that people are on the verge of burning out like never before from church is because people had something 50 years they don't have today. Community. Everyone goes it alone today. And social media doesn't count. So if God, if God is moving your heart to, uh, to really get down alongside people and become transparent, I would encourage you, please join a home group this morning. Stop by the home group card on the way out. And for those of you that are like, you know, you're still skeptical, you're like, you know what? I'm still going to wait until the Spirit leads me to a group where I really feel like I belong and feel like I'm connected. If that's you, I'm, I'm just going to let the Apostle Paul speak to you real quick, okay? Just real quick, and I'll let you go. In Philippians 2, Paul says this. He said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, hey, listen, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, in full accord, in full accord, in full accord, and of one mind. This is, what, this is what Paul's saying to these folks in Philippia that cannot get along. Even uh, Syntyche and, and Yoda are about like beating themselves up. These two old widows are going at it. They're probably Jew and Gentile. Who knows? This is what Paul says to that church. He says, listen, you can never say when you visit a home group or a church, I didn't connect there. Because if you are a believer in Christ, you have the greatest bond possible with another Christian. You have Christ in you. Okay? So if you're a nine-year-old Christian or a 90-year-old Christian, you have the strongest bond possible. You have Christ. You're a partaker of the divine nature, Peter says. And, and, and you're, are you telling me that Christ isn't compatible with himself? It's, it's, it's naive to say, you know what, I visited that place and there's no connection there. Well... The only way that's possible is if you're an unbeliever. That's the only way. And I'm not impugning anyone with that. But what I'm saying is this. A lot of genuine Christians struggle so much with the sin of partiality that they forget it's the Spirit of Christ that makes us have this common bond. It's not our personality. It's not our hobbies. It's not if we collect matchbox cars or whatever it is. It's the fact that we have Christ in us. And that is why Jesus said this. He said, if you only love people who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even unbelievers do the same? In other words, if you only associate and hang with people and go to a home group of people just like you, how is that any different than the unbelieving world? That's no different. There's nothing countercultural about that. There's nothing like divine and supernatural about that. If people walk in here and see the same partiality they see out there, guess what? There's nothing transforming about that. And that's why Jesus says, listen, if your love falls along merely human lines and party lines and boundaries, then what reward do you have? Because in other words, you're living beneath the dignity of the cross. 